All right, ladies and gentlemen,、uh, this is Tom here. Welcome back, Tennis of Melbourne Convo and City of Love. And I'm so excited to have David, Mr. David Smith. David, you want to say hello to our 50 million family and friends? Well, hello, all 50 million plus, and I'm <laughs> so happy to be、uh, able to take advantage of this technology to to say hello、mm-hmm. from the states to all of you、uh, down under. Awesome. Okay,、um, you want to tell us、uh, listeners、uh, whereabouts you from? And、uh, where are you at? And what time is over there? So in here in Melbourne, it's、uh, about one o'clock in the afternoon. Perfect. Well, it's almost seven、uh, p.m. here. I'm in southern Utah. I grew up in Southern California.、Um, to uh, uh, grew, obviously grow, grow, growing up in a very tennis、uh, competitive area, as you may be familiar with the, in the United States, California is one of the. One of the hotbeds for tennis, and、uh, moved to Arizona after I coached out in California for a number of years, and then、uh, moved to Utah about 23 years ago. And so I'm in the beautiful area. If any of you have visited Zion National Park, it's in my backyard, and we just have a great area out here for both tennis, golf, outdoor hiking, biking, and just a, a neat area. So that's where、okay. I'm at. If you're ever if you're ever coming to The United States, and you're headed to Southern Utah. Please look me up. I'd love to visit with my friends that from out there. Wow, such an impressive、uh, resume. Now,、um, I, we're just going to touch on the light side to start with. And one of your one of your uh, Facebook, uh, I guess uh, your your description is、uh, an operator for in a Disney World. Well, Disneyland. Oh, Disneyland. Right down the street. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up right down the street from. World famous Disneyland in Anaheim, California. Actually, I grew up in Garden Grove, which was a half mile from Disneyland, and I was fortunate enough to actually work there. I've written some top-selling books called "The Hidden Mickey Mysteries" about Walt Disney and Disneyland, and、mm-hmm. I've had a wonderful experience、uh, working there and being involved, speaking at different Disney events, and just have had a great life, I guess you could say. Of, Being involved in that part as well as my tennis life, so very cool. Oh wow! Okay, now、um, we're going to start with with tennis. Now,、um, have you been to Australia or Australian Open or Melbourne before? I have never been. I've been to London. I've been、uh, I've, I've been all throughout the United States and the U.S. Open, but I've never been fortunate enough to be to your beautiful country and obviously the、uh, Australian the AO, as they say. Uh, to experience that. Okay.、Um, you said U.S. Open. Does that mean you also went to the U.S. Open、uh, just finished recently? No, it was a number of a few years ago. I used to be the senior editor for TennisOne.com, which was the world's number one website for tennis instruction, and so I had credentials and and did commentary for. Uh, that and for the Pacific Life Open, which、uh, which is now the or which was the、uh, Pacific Life now the BNP down in Indian Wells in the Palm Springs area.、Um, so I've I've kind of been involved with、uh, the the、uh, observation and reporting aspect as well as the instructional component. Jeez. Okay. Look,、um, I myself. Okay, so for those who don't know, I've been list, I've been doing one convo. So for all the American listeners, convo means conversation in in Australia because you know、right. sometimes Australians a little bit laid back, so we, we change the word a bit. So convo. So I've been doing one convo every single day, every single day, and most weekends ever since the first lockdown in March. So recently, I've surpassed two hundred convos. Now, I myself,、oh, wow. I wouldn't class thanks. I wouldn't classify myself as a, a journalist or、um, you know somewhere in the past. I just simply like to reach out and have a convo with people and then just sharing their stories. Now, for someone who's been doing so long,、uh, for, would, what would be one or two tips for me as a as a I, I guess you can call me a, a journalist、um, in order for me to I guess、uh, to take it to the next level. Well, I enjoy、uh, any time you can create a, a connection with、uh, people through tennis within a context of other sports or other activities. If you can parlay those actions or, or 
bring a, a find a connectivity between other sports. I, when I speak, I teach tennis, and I've been teaching for forty five years, and and I try to use a lot of analogies to other sports because you know as well as I do, Tom, that that we teach a wide range of of players that have different experiences, and we need to and for entertainment, whether we're commentating to uh, make something seem relevant or whether we're using it as an instructional opportunity. Mm. The key for me is to try to create an analogy or connectivity with things in real life outside of tennis sometimes mm. that people can relate to. So that would be one thing. If you've read my articles on Tennis One, I've written about 350 articles. Wow. And uh, so I've, I've been, besides my tennis books and uh, whatnot, uh, my and my Disney books, I've, I've written a lot of tennis articles as a senior editor for Tennis One, which all my articles are now seen on TennisPlayer.net, which is uh, a great website, too, um, that took over. Over uh, when um, they uh, bought, basically bought out the uh, the rights to all the uh, tennisone.com um, articles. So there's a lot of good stuff from many great pros and, and speakers and, and who have been in the trenches, so to speak. So, but uh, you know, it's it's really fun to to share things from a different perspective rather than just you know you know spew out what they see, which is obviously part of commentary, but if you can tie it with uh, something that people can relate to, so much the better. Be sure to check out those websites. I'm certainly going to check it out You know, um, in the near future. Now, um, what about, would you say, the part where you, know, you wrote so many articles and you've been around so long, would you say tennis is literally your lifestyle in the sense where You've got to consider your family, your social life, or even tennis is a social in, in many ways. So do you have to balance out between your priorities around tennis or with tennis? Um, I think that if you want to be successful at anything, you have to be passionate about it. And I, I do speak at conventions. In fact, I'll be in Alabama here in two weeks speaking uh, at the uh, USPTA convention there. And, and, I, and one of the things I, I bring to those kind of events is that if you want to be successful at anything, you really have to have a sincere passion for it. And I think that means you've... I, I, if you've ever seen the, the movie from a number of years ago called City Slickers with Billy yes. Crystal, yes. Um, he, he, there was a great line in that movie. He, he asked the old wrangler, uh, what's the secret to life? And the wrangler holds up his finger, one finger, and he says, one thing. And Billy asks him, well, what's that one thing? And he says, well, that's what you have to find out about, and you've got to be passionate about it. Oh. And I think... I think the the secret to life is, and you can be passionate about many things. It doesn't have to be solely. I, I've obviously my profession is tennis, but I, I'm also a, a, I've coached golf. My my daughter was a phenomenal golfer, which I've enjoyed being part of her uh, life in terms of when she was a junior golfer all the way through her four years of Division One golf. But um, I, I, I love writing. I've written many novels and, and stuff, and I'm passionate about that. But mm. certainly, if you're passionate about something, you're going to learn everything you can about it. You're going to seek. You're going to be proactive. You're going to be looking for things in a different light than if you were just doing it because you have to or because you have a job to do it. And so... If you're passionate about it, it's like that famous saying, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That's so true. And, so true. and I think that's for all of us. I love what I do, whether it's teaching tennis, whether it's coaching tennis, whether it's writing about tennis um, or writing novels and mysteries and things about Disney, which I loved my, my six, seven years working at Disneyland and learning uh, to deal with 50,000 people a day and just the learning about people, learning about meeting people from all over the world uh, just was a great experience. And so that would be my my advice to anybody to to take on whatever it is you do and find a way to be passionate about that. Um, if you can go back to your early days in, as a journalist or even just writing articles about tennis, what would be one thing you would like to improve on or you would love to know a little bit earlier? And, um, yeah. 
Uh, that's that's a tough question because um, you learn every time you write. Um, when I speak at writing conventions, I I share stuff that I've learned. And one of the things I have learned is that to be a good writer, whether it's in, in a journalistic uh, opportunity, whether it's, it's in a fictional setting, whether it's uh, whatever it is, um, the more you write, the better you get at it. So I, I don't think there's a shortcut necessarily. I was never trained to be a writer. I, I literally uh, loved the, the physicality of writing. I loved the feeling of typing. I'm a, a very fast typist, so I enjoyed my thoughts appearing, if you will, on paper. Um, and so I would probably say I, I, maybe I should have done it sooner. I didn't start writing until I was in my mid-30s, and I didn't have write my first book, uh, my first Disney book, well, my first tennis book I wrote when I was uh, right about at 40. Uh, tennis Mastery came out about uh, 20 years ago, and Coaching Mastery came out about six years after that. And my newest book just came out mm. called High School Coaching Mastery, which is focused more on the high school type of uh, tennis coach here in the States. So, but I, I do wish I would have started maybe sooner, but you know what? I wouldn't have had all the experiences piled up that I think contributed to my ability to convey my thoughts in mm. such a way that would be interesting, I guess. So uh, maybe maybe just starting earlier, but really, if, if anybody out there is, is looking to be a writer or uh, being in that realm as you are, Tom, you know, we just have, you just have to get out there and and uh, make some mistakes and, and learn from them and talk to people and and uh, read a lot. So reading and writing go very hand-in-hand hand together. Okay. Now, you mentioned about coaching. Now, there is there is one super big and ultimate question that happens to every single combo for the last 200 days plus, which is probably, I would say, one of my favorite questions of all time, is that okay. in, your, in your experience and opinion, what would be one difference between a good coach and a great coach? Uh, in fact, I just uh, replied to something. Was that one of your posts on Facebook? I wonder. Um, the, that question came up. Correct. And the, the, the key to that question is every player, uh, and I, I've, I'm literally a living proof of this, every player I coach Literally, if they stay with my program, become a highly skilled player. And that's not to pat myself on the back. That's to prove that my methodology that I write about in my books is called the Advanced Foundation. I believe every player has the capability to be a highly skilled player. And what I found from that perspective is that when players are taught not inferior methods that are, say, arguably easier and create immediate gratification, but are focused on a, a skill set that are based on skilled play that will give the player, regardless of their age, the best chance to achieve whatever level they want. Because let's face it, I think the worst players we see out there are the ones that learned inferior methods that must change later for them to become a more skilled player. And this would, highly, this would explain why we have millions upon millions of players who are stuck at levels far below their potential, their athleticism, their desire, but they learn inferior grips or inferior strokes or inferior technique or inferior methodologies that do not allow the player to use whatever gifts or whatever uh, technique that they might have learned and mastered earlier. And I have proof of this because I've had players, and I mentioned this in all my books, that I've had players who were the worst players on my teams. And I've had team, my, some of the largest teams in, in the country. I've averaged 50 girls on a team and usually about 40 boys on each team. And I, I have a no-cut policy. And the, one of the reasons I have a no-cut policy is very simple. Uh, in Southern California, which is certainly one of the most competitive tennis environments, I had a kid come out for my high school team his freshman year. Mm. Worst kid I've ever had. Literally could not drop and hit the ball himself. Could not drop it for himself and make contact as a freshman. Worst kid on my ladder, I think it was number 48 out of 48 or 46 out of 46, whatever it was. Anyway, long story short, his sophomore year to his senior year, he was the number one doubles player in Southern California, won 170 consecutive 
high school matches in one of the most prolific competitive tennis environments in this country. Now, imagine most coaches would have cut that player, would have said, hey, you're never going to make it. You're never going to, you know, the sport's just not cut out for you. Yet here was a kid that he had the desire. We instilled a passion for him to want to get better, and he did. And I've had hundreds of players, maybe not to that extreme, but certainly within that context of who started off very, very low as an incoming player or a raw beginner and did not show initially much in the way of, of potential. So, Yet, sorry, so how would you create... No, you're fine. So how would you create desire? Because I think that many convos I had with coaches, you know, they always talk about, as you said, you know, attitude, attitude, discipline, hard work and all that. But I never really heard a coach actually touched on desire. And I'm sure a lot of the coaches will be taking note, taking down notes. Uh, the most important thing is belief. Um, I create a sincere belief in every single player that comes out for my team. And don't get me wrong, I don't, I, I don't keep every player that comes out when I was an academy owner and when I was a, a director of tennis and a head pro. Um, you know, we had some of the largest programs, but not every kid stayed out for our program. And I never expect that because no kid stays out for any sport. You know, not every single kid stays out for soccer or baseball or basketball or whatever. And so tennis is so different. I never, never get upset with a, if a kid says, you know, this isn't for me. I'm like, hey, that's great. You know, you gave it a shot. But most, most of my kids, most of my players stay with our program, and there's a simple reason. We, we, we not only instruct the kids within this advanced foundation, they know they're getting the stroke technique that, that the pros use, that top players, top juniors, top college players gain. And they get that desire in themselves. You, you, you don't really teach desire. You inspire desire. And the inspiration comes when a player starts to see themselves hitting and executing shots that they see. I've had hundreds of kids, thousands of kids say, Coach, did you see me hit that inside-out forehand? Just like, just like Nadal does or just like Federer does. And, you know, that's, that's, now you've got a kid hooked for life. And the, the fact of the matter is, I, I've seen so many kids develop such a passion for the sport because that that came out initially like, hey, I don't know if I'm ever going to like this sport. My parents want me to come out here. But yet we first create that belief, a sincere belief, belief in them that creates a belief in themselves. And I think that is the most important aspect to developing players to reach their full potential because most of these kids don't really even know how good they think they want to be, yeah, let alone how, how good they think they can be. Yeah. And when you start to create that, they start going, wow, I'm hitting, I'm hitting shots that I never dreamed of hitting. And wow, that's powerful stuff. Were there times where you found as a coach, where you found, mm, I'm not sure, the kid is great, great desire, great attitude, but I'm not sure about, the kid's parents, how he was approached, you know, first thing to say after a match, you know, that sort of killing the desire, mm-hmm. as we mentioned, you know, how do you deal with situations like this? Um, the, the main thing is communication. Um, a, a lot of pros let things go too long. Uh, they don't communicate early what their expectations are of the parent. They don't, as well as to say in a school setting like we have here in the States, we have high school sports and virtually every sport. And so a lot of coaches get in trouble when they don't communicate the expectations, the consequences and things like that. But I think when you're talking about pros who work in clubs, and I've, I've spent 20 years working in clubs, uh, academies, and, and running my own academy, and, and I will say that, you know, 99% of your parents can be your best um, your best uh, loyalist, um, and then, but they, you can also create parents who are your your worst, um, and part of that would come from a lack of their understanding of what they, they feel your expect, expectations are of them. And I, I communicate a lot because I, you know, I obviously I've got three tennis books, so I give all my kids a book. 
And these are very thick books. These are, you know, 350-page wow. books on tennis, so they're very extensive resources. Mm -hmm. and, then, and Coaching Mastery is my main book that is also for parents. Mm -hmm. And we, we really outline we don't want parents to be living vicariously through their kid, but we do want them to be uh, an integral part of their kid's development and, and a support mechanism resource for their kid. So that's the big thing. And, of course, you're going to get the helicopter parent. You're going to get the, the parent who thinks they know everything or you're going to get the parent who <laughs> wants to do everything. And, and you know, you sometimes have to lay down the law of uh, this is my program. Um, we're, you're welcome to watch, observe, be supportive, um, but I, you know, these are the expectations. I have a list of expectations that I know my parents know that what I expect out of them. And if it doesn't work, then that, that kid and that parent are not going to be part of my program. That has never happened, mm. but I would never hesitate for, to take on that, you know, extreme step of saying, you know what, this just isn't going to work out. There's a club right down the street. You, you may may want to explore them, but this just isn't working out for the way we run things here. We wish you luck. We I, I never want to burn a bridge, and I never want to rule out a kid. I always want them to leave with the feeling that, you know what, you did great. Uh, we're just probably not a good fit. And never, ever try to uh, pin, uh, paint a kid or a parent into a corner that they have no uh, no uh, outcome other than to, to make you look bad down the road. So we always try to keep that in, in the forefront of uh, both all my assistants and, and myself in, in terms of working with players and, and, and parents and making sure that they're all they're welcome to come back. We always want to leave that door open if they're willing to stay within the, the framework of our expectations. But communication, really, back to the, the main question, is if you don't have a good core set of expectations that you give your parents and you give these players, then you're, you're opening that door for a lot of miscommunication, a lot of uh, uh, failings down the road. So that brings to my next touchy subject is that um, in here in Melbourne, sometimes there are, you know, maybe parents, look, we're not trying to paint a bad picture for parents in any way. So there, there might be parents or even kids, you know, all right, so you think you've been coaching my kid for, you know, so-and-so, and then big tournament. Oh, okay. So instead of expected to go semifinal or better and then losing the second round, okay, well, it's coach's fault. You know, we've done, we've done everything on, on our side, then it's your fault, it's coach's fault. How would you deal with situation like, well, one for one is during match day, play it's obviously we all know it's very different to training and secondly is how would you deal with this kind of culture if you can have a bit of a tip for both tennis parents and also coaches yeah well the first thing you have to understand and the you, you've got to communicate is that um there's always going to be a winner and a loser on, on the tennis court um and you can either be a double loser where you lose a match and you don't learn from your loss um uh, I can't remember uh, Jim McClellan, I believe, uh, I heard him speaking about 20 years ago in, in, uh, at a convention, and I think he labeled that person a double loser, uh, as a person that loses a match and that doesn't learn from that loss. And, uh, you know, I've, I've coached the most successful tennis teams in the country, uh, just retired from high school coaching, and where my teams won uh, 60 consecutive matches. And in California, my teams won 399 consecutive matches before we ever had a loss. And this success obviously did, I mean, we, we had those many team wins, but we also had many matches where we had individuals lose a match. We had enough wins by the other players, so everyone contributes and not everybody has a great day. So dealing with a parent or with a player who they have high expectations, um, you know, part of the training is, you know, making kids understand the, the, what I call the learning roller coaster. You're going to have ups and downs. 
You're going to either learn from your losses and learn from the beam when you're down, and then when you least expect it, you're going to have the ups, and you're going to be winning matches you never dreamed of winning. And um, my teams in the last four years mm-hmm. had uh, matches, over 15 matches, where my girls were down match point wow. and yet came back and won 15 different times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and some of those come from behinds actually – ended up winning us a region title which if we if the girl had lost we would have not finished undefeated and you know it's just strange that and and i i think part of that is the confidence that i try to bring when i'm watching my players play i'm very relaxed i intentionally look very not unconcerned but very relaxed i walk onto the court if if i'm on a changeover in high school we're allowed to coach our players on changeovers and i'll walk out there sometimes and say you know your shoes look fabulous or you know something (laughs) very you know and I'll, i'll come i'll walk out there and just give a fist pump and walk away right away without even saying a word and i watch other coaches run out there They've got a laundry list of things they're telling their kids, and they're, they're, they're just loading their kid down and pulling their kid away from the present because now they're thinking of all these things the coach told them. And I tell my kids all the time, I'm not going to talk to you much because, number one, I'm very confident in what we teach you. And I'm number two, I'm even more confident in you. Mm-hmm. And so just to be you know clear, I don't run into that a ton, but – there are times where a player loses and, you know, a parent may come to me and say, you know, why is my kid losing? And, and part of it is you, you, you'd never know the personality and the various uh, inflections of, of confidence and whatnot, even though you can do everything right. And yet a kid just can't, I've had a couple kids that literally just couldn't win. Just a couple. And, you know, you just have to do the best you can and deal with those players and those parents and say, you know what, let's learn from this and figure out what's going on and, you know, examine it from an objective standpoint. The problem, the biggest problem is when players and parents look at losses subjectively, emotionally, Mm. and that's when when you never learn and you never get past it. When you look at an, a loss and go, well, you know what? That person had a, a great approach shot, uh, was able to stand the point longer, uh, first serve percentage were better. Now that gives you some solid ground to work on, as well as you're no longer going, oh, my gosh, I just can't win. That's, that's subjective. That's emotional. And, uh, yes, you can win, and you will win. And that's basically the way I approach it uh, in almost every case, uh, and it works. Wow. There you go. I hope you got people are, are taking down notes. That, that, that's brilliant. Now, um, if, if I may, um, you've, you've been coaching so many years, and um, did you play a lot of tennis uh, when you were younger, or did it, how did you transfer the, the skill set and the mindset and the transition from player to a coach? To coach, well, it's a great question. Um, I was a golfer initially, and then I went to tennis. Um, I when I started high school, uh, didn't like the golf coach, so I went to tennis. My father was a very famous tennis coach uh, here in the states. Uh, was actually recognized um, as a, a national coach of the year, um, all sports uh, coach of the year uh, back in '84. So I, you know, everybody expected me to be this great tennis player, which I wasn't. <laughs> My freshman year, I was I was terrible, and uh, because I I was really a golfer, and so but then I got hooked on. Tennis. I got passionate about tennis, and I had three or four friends that we would go out and literally play six or seven hours on Saturday, six or seven hours on Sunday, every weekend. And uh, we took some lessons, but for the most part, we figured things out. We learned things, and I I do wish I would have taken more lessons Mm -hmm. as a kid because it would have – sped up my learning process but at the same time um my by me figuring things out I, I figured things out on my own a lot and could emulate and watch things very carefully but i did play my junior uh, high school year i did set uh, my school records uh, in fact our, our school will be celebrated its 100th year mm-hmm. this coming june so i'm very proud that i still own two of the tennis records that my junior, my sophomore, junior, senior years, I went undefeated. And uh, I just, you know, it, it was it was one of those things where I just 
fell into a great group of guys on my team. We, we did everything together, played a lot of tournaments. Southern California, there's a tournament every weekend virtually. Um, and to give you an idea of size, I, I, I remember playing the Arcadia tournament my junior year of high school, so I was 16 years old. And there were 380 uh, players in my draw. Whoa. Um, so yeah, <laughs> how long <laughs> it was is the tournament? Six, is it five day tournament? It, uh, there are two 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 weekends. Almost all the tournaments in California are two weekends in a row. So Ooh. Saturday, Sunday, Saturday, Sunday. So I remember playing Arcadia. I played ten or eight rounds. I think I played eight rounds to get to the semi. I lost in three sets in the semis. Jeez. But that was one of the reasons why tennis was so competitive. You 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 had thousands of junior players that were all very, very good. And so, you know, I played junior tennis, and then I, I knew I was going to go into coaching. I, I coached with my father, and then I coached against my father, uh, and then my father passed away in 84, 85, and then I took over his team for another seven years before I moved to another state and took over a team there and, and continued the success and the same coaching philosophy that that he taught me and that I taught myself through other, other you know, uh, I, I went a lot further than my dad in terms of learning uh, as a, a, a professional. I, I, I'd attended conferences and workshops and really studied the sport to a, a very high level of interest. And um, so I took those same skills and, and taught the same thing and won 300 uh, matches and lost six in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And then moved to Arizona, moved to Utah, and I was the head pro, and I opened up an academy and a, a fitness facility with tennis, and had then retired for eight years, uh, working with my daughter for um, in her golf game for about six of those years, and then um, returned to high school coaching four years ago. So I took about eighteen years off from high school coaching, and coached four more years here, and then retired this year. And so it's been. Very interesting. I think every uh, do they have? Tell me this, Tom. Do you guys have high school tennis, or is it all club tennis there? <laughs> Mostly club. Uh, we do have okay. a few schools that are just specialized in tennis. But um, in comparing to to I guess the states, uh, we still we still I guess I wouldn't say a shrimp versus a shark, but we still have numerous of tennis courts uh, in in Melbourne. We call a metro uh, metropolitan area. Um, but yeah, we, we, we tend to have, in a sense, as you, as you mentioned, but we do have tournaments, um, you know, uh, a lot of tournaments, especially during school holidays, you know, up to ooh, seven or eight tournaments in, in two weeks, you know, in different various yeah. places. Um, the, the part where I'm really, cause as you were saying things and I was taking down notes and you said, you mentioned about golf and then tennis yep. and for, for someone who knows me really well, I, I can be really weird in a wonderful way. If I can, this, if I can ask you this, if you can have all the skill set and experience and reward and and, and trophies on, in, in your in your in your on the shelf, who would you like from Tiger Woods or Roger Federer? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Uh, um, because I'm as I'm equally passionate about golf. I just don't. I'm not a. Um, I'm just not as um, studious of a student of golf as I am tennis, and I turned my my daughter over to a, a pro who was on what I felt was on the same long term development process that my the way I teach tennis. So I I can't take uh, credit for for her, although I, I did start. Her. Um, but you know what? Those are two of the greatest of all time in their sport. And uh, tennis, uh, are you asking who would I want to be or who would I want to emulate? Or uh, not you, quite sure how you want me to respond to that. Who would you want to be as well as having the skill set? You know what? To make it real hard, to make it harder as it is, Michael Jordan, Roger Federer, or Tiger Woods? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's a good one. Well, it would, it would uh, for me, it would be a toss-up between Fed and, and Tigers because I love both sports. I'm not huge in basketball, but I, I know what a great, uh, 
athlete that Michael is and, and certainly followed basketball. I was a huge Lakers fan when, when back in the old days of Jerry West and Will Chamberlain and, and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar later. So I, I loved basketball as a kid, but I didn't study the sport like I do tennis and golf. So, geez, you know, I think from, from a, a personality standpoint, I think Federer is just gracious in every way. Mm-hmm. I think Tiger uh, brings a a competitive mindset that's second to none when he was at his prime, uh, his focus, his his um, mastery. One, th- one thing I'll, I'll, I'll share that maybe you guys don't know about Tiger and about Pete Sampras. Now, obviously you didn't bring up Pete, but I they have something very much in common that I talk to my students about. One thing that Pete did, one thing that Tiger Woods both did, when they were kids and they were passionate about tennis and golf, without anybody telling them, they both did a report for themselves about the greatest golfers, especially Jack Nicklaus for Tiger, and about the greatest tennis players, Labor for uh, Pete, but others as well. And what they did is they, they did research for themselves to learn how Tiger and, I mean, to learn how Jack in, in golf and learn how uh, Rod and Rocket Rod in, in tennis conducted themselves not just on the court or on the golf course, but off the course, how they responded to uh, interviews, how they um, treated their fans, like Arnold Palmer was famous for caring about his fans and spending time, hours sometimes, signing autographs because he he felt that these were people important to him, even though he knew nothing about them. And so I find it very interesting that these two world-class, you know, greatest of all times, arguably, uh, golfer and tennis player, um, did that. Um, and I think that reveals a lot about their desire to learn everything about their sport and the greatest players of their sport uh, that preceded them. And I'm sure Roger probably, I don't know Roger, obviously, as well as I've, uh, Pete grew up in, in California and, and was a, a product of Robert Lansdorp. And, and uh, you know, I, I just seem to feel like I've, I've learned more about Pete than I, I did about Roger. But regardless, I think that's something most top champions have done. They they go beyond what's expected. They go beyond the lesson. They go beyond just drilling. They go on and study everything they can find about that play, those players that preceded them who were great, great players. And they think that that sets up a mindset that says, I want to be like them. Hmm. Well. Okay. So uh, I didn't answer your question, <laughs> but, you, <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely mm-hmm. would say either Federer or uh, or Tiger would be both in terms of their competitive spirit. Their uh, I, I, certainly, I've always loved Roger's fluidity, and how, that's one of the reasons why he has endured so long. Even as he's getting older, he's still playing the sport at a very high level. Um, unlike uh, Rafa or some of the other players who swing with so much uh, muscular contortionist type of movements that's that's tough on the body over the years and I think Roger except for when he fell I think it was bathing his child I think his only injury, real injury was a fluke when he fell uh, giving his daughter or son I don't remember who it was, a a bath and he Mm -hmm. slipped and fell and uh, hurt his knee or something, I can't remember, his arm, whatever, it was a, year, a few years ago. But um, other than that, he's been pretty injury-free. And I think I, I try to teach my my players to be as fluid so that the body is not having to encounter the stresses of more, um, shall we say, um, things that are going to wear you out sooner, if you mm. look at it that way. Nice. Nice. So, my, my 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 understanding between you golf and tennis is literally, you know, more than half of your of your life. If you if you can, tri- yeah, pretty pretty much. <laughs> yeah, if, if you can trickle down maybe one or two things from from these two sports and even other sports that you follow, what do you think these two sports 
taught you as a person and as a character? Well, both golf and tennis are individual sports, so certainly you you are out there um, as your own individual. You're 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 not part of a team that that necessarily is a good or bad thing. But I think just the fact that uh, the the sports do teach you um, how to be self reliant sometimes far more than maybe a team sport. Both sports are, are relatively, especially golf, is, is a gentleman sport. It's it, I, I really enjoyed um, being able to travel around the world and, and certainly around the country, especially in the western half of the U.S. with my daughter, um, and getting to meet so many parents who understand their role so well. Um, tennis is a little bit more competitive because you're playing the opponent where golf you're playing the course, and there's a big difference there um, because there's, you know, when you're playing another person, there's always a little tension, a little animosity, a little competitiveness that, that leaks out there that that can cause friction and other things. But golf, I mean, there's still competitiveness. You want to win, but when I just love the fact that um, you know the other girls when they were playing the USGA and various tournaments. Um, you know, when somebody hit a good shot or a hole in one or some spectacular shot, I mean, there was sincere, like, good job. That's, um, you know, they're, they're, because everyone can relate to that feeling because most players have had some success or something. So there's a lot more um, congeniality there uh, in golf. But, I, you know, I, I, from a coaching and teaching standpoint, the biggest thing I, I can share with your listeners and with you is that I've learned that both golf and tennis are built, if you want to be successful, you need to build an advanced foundation from the very beginning of when your student starts to play the sport. I trained my daughter first in tennis when she was eight. I actually did a one-year study for TennisOne.com and documented her drills and progressions each month for a year. And by the time she was nine, she was hitting with college players and hitting a kick serve with a full-size racket. Um, you know, a lot of, I got emails from people in England and all over the country here and saying, I didn't realize that you could train a little girl to swing a full size rack and then hit a slice and a kick and a hybrid serve. And I said, well, that's because when you learn tennis correctly, it's not a strength issue. I, I demonstrate on in clinics and demonstrations all the time. I'll hold the rack with two fingers, and I'll have one of uh, my players hit a you know eighty mile an hour forehand at me, and I'll just block it back with two fingers. I mean, it's tennis is not a strength issue when you learn it correctly, and that's why my daughter at eight years of age, who's just an average athlete, not, nothing, nothing. She wasn't a you know a phenom in any way, shape, or form. But she was dedicated to learning the sport the way I was teaching her, and uh, she learned golf the same way. And um, she became a world-ranked golfer when she was a junior in college. And I don't think, I mean, again, I'm a proud dad, but I look at the way she was raised in terms of learning the sports, never pushed hard. But learning this advanced methodology, continental grip on the serve and the volley, slice backhand, two-handed forehand, two-handed backhand like Monica Sellers, and she didn't pick up a tennis rack for 10 years when she went out not about a month and a half ago and said, Dad, let's go hit. And she could still hit the ball as good as she ever did. And even though she hadn't played tennis, you know, her focus was on golf. But, I mean, I've seen thousands. I've taught 3,500 players and, and with, with very few exceptions, um, most all of them became became highly skilled players. Now, that doesn't mean they became nationally ranked or even state ranked, but they became very successful tennis players. And I, I really look at that and go, you know what? They're going to be good tennis players for the rest of their life, for the rest of their life. I can't think of a better gift mm. as a coach for me to give a player that ability to do something well and enjoy it at a very high level. I've taught thousands of uh, adults, and most of them came to me after having played for 30, 40 years mm. with very inferior methodology and never got past, say, a 3-0 level. And that's their biggest regret is that they – and they had every capability, but they've 
became so ingrained, I had to use a lot of different tools to override muscle memory, but you get the picture. Yeah. That advanced foundation, mm -hmm. skills that are associated with skilled play, right. are, can be taught to six-year-olds and 58-year-olds, and I even taught an 80-year-old who was one of the best players in the country, and she was still wanting to take lessons at 83 years old um, every week. And she was she beat Dodo Cheney, who was the all-time greatest golden ball winner of the USTA here in the States. And, mm -hmm. I mean, here's an 83-year-old still wanting to improve, and that's passion as well. I, right. I believe that's real passion. Right. Now, um, just on the last part is, if I may, and again, so appreciated for for your for your love and and your, and your passion and also the value. Thank you. Now, you mentioned you've been around, say, we mentioned like you know, thirty, forty years, you know, just riding. Um, do you miss the nineties? Do I miss the nineties? <laughs> yeah, I love the nineties. Um, Monica Sellers, Steffi Graf. Agassi. Oh, I, I, I miss. Yeah, you know what? That you're from a tennis standpoint. That was a great era. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the Sampras era, the Agassi era. Mm -hmm. um, you know the Jim Couriers, the Michael Chang, who I grew up just down the street from. No uh, way. Just really? yeah, he 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 grew up uh, just in Fullerton, which was just the next city over, and um, he, he was a great player out of the Orange County area, played the juniors. I, I, you know, my era back when I was a kid played uh, a lot of tennis with, not with, but next to uh, Tracy Austin. Uh, Tracy was, uh, played all the junior tennis tournaments and very down to earth young lady. And I've spoken with her at many conventions that uh, her and Robert Lansdorff, who trained her, um, you know, and just the fact that I got to grow up, you know, mm -hmm. playing, I played against Ricky Leach and, and uh, Robert Vantoff, who was the number one doubles player in the world uh, back in, you know, the 90s. Um, you know, that was my junior years of, of growing up and playing some of these, you know, players that would, uh, you know. And, and, and my high school years uh, coaching, when I coached in California, I had Debbie Graham and Susanna Lee. Debbie was the number one player in the U.S. And her, you know, when she was 14, 16, and 18. And Susanna Lee was the number one player from Korea. Mm -hmm. And she was my number two player on my high school team. <laughs> you know? um, so behind Debbie. And so, you know, you get to learn a lot about that, mm -hmm. you know, and that was a great era. I mean, that those, we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s, um, as I was teaching and playing and coaching and uh, playing my college tennis from uh, 76 to 81. And then... Um, so uh, the 90s was a great year. I think the 80s were great, um, certainly for the U.S. tennis world. Obviously, it's it's well known that the U.S. men have not done diddly squat. <laughs> and I think that's partially uh, the fault of, of the USTA. But mm -hmm. there's many other aspects to it because I think other countries – and I think Australia is probably in the same boat, um, you know, where, where the U.S. and Australia just dominated the sport. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Rod, Rod, Rod Laver, Margaret Court, uh, mm -hmm. Virginia, you know, all the great players of Australia. Um, you know, that was a great era uh, for both countries. And yet now other countries, tennis has become a big sport. Uh, Serbia, I mean, look at jo Djokovic, look at uh, the, the European, I mean, the Asian countries, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Taiwanese, the mm -hmm. Koreans are all dominating or, or becoming more dominant, especially in the world of golf. Uh, especially on the women's side, mm -hmm. um, we see tremendous, you know, growth because those sport, the sport has become more uh, a dominant sport in those countries. So we're now having to compete with countries that literally have discovered a sport and now they're going after it. So, you know, you can't necessarily blame the, the powers that be, but at the same time, I think we could all be doing a better job in, in, uh, I know I'd be doing things a lot differently if I was running our, our, our national, uh, tennis, uh, uh programs, mm. but, I'm just a small fish in a big pond. <laughs> right, right. Now, for, for the listeners probably picked up earlier, I, I did sort of yell out uh, Jennifer Cabriati as one of my favorite uh, players because she kind of reminds me with Coco Gauff, Go or Gauff mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. ways. Gauff, yep. yeah. Just, Coco. Just, uh, just uh, not, not so much the prodigy, but the fight and that sort of that, yep. uh, what's the word? Um, the pureness coming into the game and also Martina Hingis as well, that, that, that these three. And I think... I'm not trying to compare these three, but Jennifer Capriati definitely um, 
caught my eyes with her skills and and fight um, before Martina Hingis. So I like at the time I just thought, wow, American tennis, you know, it's just so big. Agassi, you know, uh, yep. Salas, yep. you name it. So yeah, so that's why I thought Jennifer Capriati deserved a shout out. So Jennifer, if you're listening, I, I, I think I yeah, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jennifer, you know, Jennifer was of that era where women's tennis changed from the Chrissy Everett. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the softer, full, long stroke and, you know, not a power game. And I think, uh, Sellas and, and, uh, Jennifer and certainly, uh, Steffi Graf's forehand and mm-hmm. Lindsay Davenport's backhand and, and just the power of the women's game. Of course, later Serena and Venus and, and that era. But, um, Jennifer was definitely the, one of the first to just outright grunt and crush. I mean, just, you know, good, bad, or indifferently, if you, if you don't like grunting, but, you know, the power game on the women's side certainly changed. And, you know, I can remember, you know, 85 mile an hour serve on the women's tour was big, you know? <laughs> and, uh, if you look at, uh, my, one of my assistants, uh, who moved to Texas was training Bethany Maddox Sands. Mm. Well, Bethany stands at five foot one. Mm-hmm. And has a hundred and twenty four mile an hour serve. I mean, she's as big as Brenda Schultz McCarthy, who's six foot three or two and serves one hundred and twenty four miles an hour. Um, I can remember standing next to um, um, oh, what's her name? Kova? Uh, um, no, who's the the young the little very tiny, very um, oh gosh, I'm bl- why am I blanking on name? Um, one-handed backhand. Um, oh gosh! Oh, no, one-handed backhand. Oh, Justin Hennen. Yes, Justine Hennen. Yeah, Hennen, um, yep. yeah. I stood next to her at the U.S. Open, and I was just—I was looking down on this girl. She was so tiny. I mean, mm. she she was tiny. And I was in the players' locker room, well, the players' lounge, and I was standing there. Actually, I was talking to Marin Bartoli at the time, and and uh, and uh, Justine Hennen just stood right next to me. And I was like, geez, she's small. (laughs) And yet she had a hundred and, you know, 19 mile an hour serve. Um, And it just reinforced again. And I've had 13 year old girls who served 150 miles an hour, not big at all. And again, technique is, it's tennis is not a strength issue. Obviously, if you serve 115, there's some, you know, physical attributes there, but really, um, these, and, and looking at, say, my daughter, who's not very big, she can, you know, drive a golf ball 285, you know, far, much farther than most of her, the males that, that play the sport. And it's technique. And, mm-hmm. um, you can watch the, the pro golfers and the, and pro tennis players warm, you know, one of the things I always encourage players, if they're, if they want to learn the game of tennis, go watch a pro match, but don't watch the match, go watch them practice. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and really see what is, what's involved and how they practice and how intense they are and how, you know, uh, the, everything is involved in that. And that, they learn so much from that. Mm. Uh, but Jen, Jen was a, a genius. It's too bad she just, you know, went through such a hard period in her life. And, and I hope she's doing well. I've not uh, seen Jennifer in, in years and have not heard from her in years. So I'm mm. not real sure what she's been doing mm. of late, but uh, here's another one. Kim Kleisters. Yes, of course. Yes. Um, Timmy. Timmy was, was that? No, no, I love, I, I love, sorry. sorry. I was saying Kimmy. I just call her cause we call her the, uh, yeah. Kim. <laughs> yeah. Call yeah. You, now, Kim, Kim's a classic. Kim, Kim to me is the feather of the women's game. Mm-hmm. The most classiest, down-to-earth, quiet-spoken. Um, I got to spend a number of days with Kim. My my, par- my player I trained, A.J. Bartlett, if you know Diadem Strings, he's mm-hmm. the one that started that company. Um, he was a student of mine for about four years here in, in Utah. And he was playing in the Pacific Life Open, and Kim asked for him every day to be her hitting partner when she became number one in the world. This would have wow. been probably 16, 18 years ago, 17 years ago. And so I was on the court with Kim and AJ, and on next to us there was anywhere from Tommy Haas to I think Marit Safin and Fabrice Santoro. So I was on the court with these guys because I had uh, coaching credentials, and you know I'd sit down with Kim and AJ, and and you know, and and she just was so pleasant and so 
um, no pretentiousness at all. And she had that fluid game, so fluid, a lot like Lindsay Davenport, only Lindsay's a much bigger person, but <laughs> Lindsay was a very fluid player as well. Mm. And um, so I just feel that Kim is a good role model uh, for players to emulate both stroke, attitude, fight, competitiveness, and yet still retain the, uh, what I felt. And I didn't spend any time off the court with her, but I spent enough time on the court to, to know that this is a, a quality individual. So I, I do recommend her if anybody studies players from the past to, to look at her carefully. Mm, wow. You know what, Dave? I, I wanted to thank you. Thank you so much. You know, behalf of Tennis of Melbourne, you know, which... Oh, I don't know whatever what's going to happen for the Australian Open, you know, 2021 and, and so forth. And sure. hopefully that the whole uh, the whole pandemic and all things will, will go away soon. And then so people like yourself with such a wealth of knowledge could, could come down to, to Melbourne uh, or even just Australia at some point and just check out our, I don't know, just some of the... Actually, you said you haven't been to Australia, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you. No, and that's, it's on my bucket list for sure, and and I, I definitely want to. <laughs> that's one of the things I definitely wanted to do. I've been to Europe many times, and, okay. and I just never have gotten that opportunity to, to come there. So that you will see me down there. Okay. You will. Well, I I'm, promise I'm going to give you a quick heads up, and just like uh, many American coaches, I'm going to give you a few Australian slangs. And you're gonna okay. and you're gonna guess what it what it is. What do you think it is? Okay. Go for it. The let me hear, one, let me hear some. The first one is Arvo. It's spelled A R V O. Arvo. What do you think this means? Arvo. Hmm. Arrival. Uh, <laughs> show up on time. I don't okay. know. I'll, what I'll you, put it what in the sentence. I'll put it in the sentence. Hey Dave. Okay. Hey Dave. Um. Let's have a hit this Arvo. Let's go have a hit this Arvo. So we're saying, let's hit this afternoon. Correct. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, don't you guys say things, don't you say things like, uh, hey, uh, you want to knock, knock it up? Yeah, knock uh, it up. Knock no. it off, guys. Knock it off. <laughs> okay. <I'll, laughs> well, I, I know in England, in yeah. England, they uh-huh. say, knock around, knock, knock me up, knock me up. Knock, knock it up with me. To knock hit, it up hit with balls. Okay. <laughs> well, you look. I'm, I'm more than happy to like reach out to some uh, English uh, uh, coaches out there. If you're listening, I'm more than happy to. I want to learn. Okay, I just thought, you know, <laughs> there you go. Yes. Call okay. top. <laughs> Another one is um, servo. He's, it's probably a little difficult, but give give it a shot. Servo. I'm going to servo, and um, yeah, I'm going to servo. So it's obviously a place. But what do you think this servo means? Is it S E R V O? Yeah, S E R V O. S E R V O servo. And, uh, uh, is it a place in Australia? Uh, it's uh, it's yes, a lot. You can or, see, yeah, you can see in highway, and it's it's for is it a place for cars? Shows you how ignorant I am about Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was more, uh, more. Uh, into, I, I should have had a heads up on this. I would have okay. done my homework. Yeah, okay. so <laughs> I, servo, I do not have a gas. So servo. So in America, you guys would call it uh, a gas. You know, fill up the gas or gas station. Oh, we, a service station. We yeah, service station. Yeah, and then we call it. Servo. Oh, okay, a servo yeah, makes yeah. total sense. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Now, um, last but not least, uh, which is I still find it really interesting. Um, to date, so we call it footy. Um, do you know what Australian footy or AFL is? Is it how do you spell it? Uh, it's uh, F O O T Y. Uh, well, I'm I'm gonna guess the obvious. It has something to do with footwear or shoes yeah. or yeah. So footwork foot- or yeah. Footy is an Australian rules football, also known as oh. AFL. So in, uh, it. in so it's kind of like a gridiron or uh, NFL in in, in the states. Yes. Yeah, so we uh, it's just as probably not as big as as the states because I think it's like I don't know a couple of hundred of millions of people tuning for that specific game. Um, over here, it's a it's a bit of nation game uh, down here in Melbourne. As well, so that's so. There's a lot of city loyalty to their their teams that play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Okay. Because well, I know, obviously, you don't play American football, but you play, obviously, football, which is our soccer. Correct. Uh, that's probably a, a national sport, I would suspect. Now, you guys also were big in badminton back in the day. Yes, Are they were. still? Do they still play a lot of badminton in, in uh, not Australia? Quite. Not quite. I think the big uh, look. All the well, my listeners will, will message me after this. But um, some of the big sports that we we are in is you know uh, okay. This is embarrassing. I would say rugby. So like uh, you know, sure, like, sure. But the thing is, yep. just recently we got thrashed or thumped by the the, the New Zealand. I think it was something like fifty five to six or something like that. It was just horrible. oh my gosh. Um, and uh, I would say uh, tennis. Is we, we we still have a big uh, big room to to improve in a sense like um, last couple of years and this is based on factors last couple of years our juniors were were slightly struggling but our our, 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 pro, our pro level is actually still getting there we're just trying to look on who's the, who's the next generation you know we got we got like sure. Alex Dimana Alex Popper but um, Popperin but we still don't have enough players since that you know um, AO is still our sort of um, our backyard. But we still right. prefer to have a little bit more um, the backup, you know, leading to for the for the next ten, fifteen years, if you will. So um, that's a, that. So one, it's still pretty big. I was still uh, one of the biggest event uh, in the country. So so tennis, footy is pretty big. Uh, we still have we still got a lot of racing. So in other words, like because our land is quite big as well. So uh, motor racing, F one, you know, Daniel Ricardo, you know. So sure. yeah, yeah, you know, so athletes like that. Um, basketball, uh, Utah. We got you got Joe Eagles. You got a, a, an Aussie or a couple of yep. Aussies um, yep. down at, uh, in, your, in your backyard. Um, yeah, I think basketball is slowly, really, really um, making a, making a big jump. No puns intended. <laughs> <laughs> so, Good one. Yeah. Well, anyway, Dave, I just want to thank you uh, for your time and, and, your, and your education. Of course. And well, I thank you for asking me on, and, mm-hmm. and I've enjoyed every minute of this. I hope uh, I've, I've been able to share something of value, but mm-hmm. uh, most importantly, thank you for for uh, sharing uh, your, your time and your energy to improve the sport oh. uh, in your country as well. I'm sure uh, it's, it's, a, it's a win-win. Oh, thank you, David. I will send you the link when it's released, and uh, for the listeners out there, um, Thank you very much on listening on Castbox and Spotify. And, and if you're an American coach, uh, even a, a college player would love to have a convo with me. My, my name is Tom, and um, I'm more than happy to spend some time. But we're just going to arrange the time difference. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> other than that, uh, David, uh, thank you very much. And then again, um, I really appreciate your, your time and effort. Um, yeah. So that's it, David. You want to say goodbye to all our 50 million friends? Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Thank you to all who are spending the time listening. And and certainly if you're ever in southern Utah, uh, in our part of the neck of the woods, uh, look me up. I I love love, uh, just uh, being able to meet people of our sport. And and it would be an honor for me to meet uh, anyone from Europe beautiful country and thank you Tom and, and I hope we'll do it again uh, you oh, know we'll, we'll, we'll certainly stay in touch okay thank you David take care <laughs> good night Bye-bye. take care you too see ya